Foucault once said, quote, Power is not an institution and not a structure, neither is it a certain strength we are endowed with. It is the name that one attributes to a complex strategical situation in a particular society, unquote. In the early 1050s, England was engaged in an epic power struggle, a clash as intricate and as dangerous as any plot from the Godfather movies. Two men, each powerful in their own right, with large families of patronage and loyalty behind them, had engaged in an epic battle of will. King Edward had probably moved to curtail and destroy the power of Earl Godwin of Wessex. As the 1050s dawned, he seemed to have succeeded. Godwin and his family were in exile. King Edward ruled the land, the other earls of England seemingly going along with his power play, and he was backed up by a small cabal of Norman priests, bishops and nobles. He had placed his wife, Godwin's daughter, into a convent. He was free to remake his regime now without that overbearing Englishman interfering. And he was free to marry again, free to rule properly. But while he had won the battle, he had not won this war. Edward's tactics had been bold, fast, politically savvy, smart. But while Godwin was out of the picture, he was not dead. And that made a difference. Godwin could return. Godwin would return. The final part of this political battle of wills was about to take place, and now people would start dying. A lot of people were about to start dying. And London, the city who we're trying to tell the story of, was to find itself besieged for the first time since the age of the Vikings. Hi, my name is Saul, and this is The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the city as a linear tale. And we've reached chapter 44, covering one of the lesser-known sieges of the city, the stakes being played for why it was happening, and London's probable reaction to finding itself surrounded by hostile soldiers. This is the final part of a series of posts, just explaining in rough detail what went on during this entire event and why it happened. And so it is my pleasure to welcome you to part three of a Godfather trilogy, The Revenge of Godwin. Edward had arranged his ambush at Southwark and Westminster, the Godwin dynasty had probably just been staying across the river from him in Lambeth. When it became clear that Edward was going to declare the Godwin sons outlaws, the family had fled, but they had not fled together. They had split up, and how they split up tells us that Earl Godwin had a plan. Firstly, two of his sons, Earl Harold, along with his younger brother Lefwine, went to Bristol. There had been prepared a ship specifically as a quick getaway vehicle. It was manned, rigged and ready to sail. It must be said that the ship had been prepared 
by the two men's older brother, Earl Sven Godwinson. Sven, by now, you would have realised, is the kind of man we know would have been the type to have had ships ready to flee at a moment's notice. So this makes complete sense. Harold jumped on board and, quote, He then went out from the mouth of the Avon, but he encountered such adverse weather that he got off with difficulty and suffered great loss. He then went forth to Ireland as soon as the weather permitted, unquote. So Harold Godwinson is in Ireland now. Oh yes, there was method in his actions, which we'll get to. Meanwhile, the rest of the family, quote, then went Earl Godwin and Earl Swen to Bosham, and they drew out the ships and went beyond the sea, seeking the protection of Baldwin, and there they abode all the winter, unquote. So Godwin and his family fled to Flanders, and there he used his political connections to start placing diplomatic pressure back on England. But he wasn't just depending on a cheesy grin and winning personality here. It must be remembered that, quote, Godwin and those who were with him went to Bruges, to Baldwin's land, in one ship, with as much treasure as they could lodge therein for each man, unquote. So he'd brought a lot of cash with him, because Godwin was going to need a lot of cash. Now, when it came to diplomacy, it was clear that both men were posturing. Godwin went to get Baldwin of Flanders to support him, and that was important as Baldwin was able to get his brother-in-law, King Henry of France, to send ambassadors to England asking for the restoration of Godwin. But King Edward wasn't biting, and besides, he'd been doing his own political grandstanding. You see, just after they exiled the Godwins, Edward is visited by a powerful foreign noble. And this guy turns up with a large contingent of heavily armed men. Now, given the circumstances that just went down, given the timing, you can't help but retain the suspicion that this foreign noble wasn't just here to visit. That when Robert of Jumierge, the Archbishop of Canterbury, had travelled back to England and had called in on a bunch of nobles. He let them know that, perhaps, Edward was planning to make a move on the Godwins. And it was this communication that led Eustace to travel over to stand with the king and probably instigated the whole incident in Dover to bring the Godwins down. And this visit screams it was part of that northern French alliance of Edward's because while this visitor had a life back in France that was being torn apart with intrigue, murder and power politics, here in 1051 he had the time and the inclination to arrive in England to send a powerful message of support for Edward. And this visitor's name? Duke William of Normandy, called by his detractors William the Bastard. William's arrival was done for two reasons. Some have suggested that he was here to fight for Edward in the event that the Godwins were still around and involved in a protective struggle here in England. And that's possibly true. But just as likely, his arrival that autumn was to send a message out to everyone that if King Edward faced the return from the Godwins, his younger and way more brutal relative, William of Normandy, would stand by him. William was the son of Robert the Devil. Robert had been a close ally of King Edward when he was younger. Edward could have reminded the young Duke of these old ties. William could have visited his great-aunt Emma of Normandy. The old dowager queen had never met the young man, and during this visit, 
there is every impression that Edward and William forged a bond here. No, for myself, I do not think William agreed to come fight for Edward, as he never did that. And I do not believe that Edward promised William the throne in the event of his death. After all, he'd just put Edith aside and he could marry again. But I do believe that King Edward was sending out a message to everyone, and especially the Godwins. And this message was to change the fate of the nation. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says very specifically that, quote, soon after came Earl William from beyond the sea with a large retinue of Frenchmen, and the king received him and as many of his companions as were convenient to him, and let him depart again, unquote. Now, what historian Mark Morris has pointed out is there is an issue with the word received. The original word actually used was underfeng, and comparing it to other uses of this word at the time, show its meaning was, to be precise, received as a vassal. This means that, strictly translated, the words, quote, the king received him and as many of his companions that were convenient to him and let him depart again, unquote, should be read as, Quote, soon after came Earl William from beyond the sea with a large retinue of Frenchmen, and he acknowledged the overlordship of King Edward, and oaths were sworn by as many of his companions as were convenient to please the king, and then Edward let him depart again, unquote. So, strictly speaking, in 1051, we have William of Normandy sailing over to England and swearing oaths that he is a loyal vassal of King Edward of England. What the hell is going on? So what I think, and this is where I ask the listener to imagine literally hundreds of books and arguments all about what this it happened here before we come to this conclusion. But what we think is going on is that Edward was being very smart. He was not promising the throne to Duke William. As I said, he could conceivably marry again and produce an heir and carry on his line, all fine and good. He wasn't an old man with a long white beard yet. But I think he was sending out a message to Godwin in Flanders and to everyone else. William was in. I think personally he was adding William to the possible line of succession. This is why he asked William to come to him as a vassal. William was to be seen as family. And he was family via Edward's mother Emma in a roundabout way. This was Edward reminding everyone that the House of Wessex had a legitimate and strong Norman branch is all. Of course, all of this was just diplomatic posturing, and the outcome of the struggle between Godwin and Edward would not be sorted out like this. This was a matter that could only be solved via violence, it seemed. The campaigning season that year began over in Wales. Seeing the chaos in England, the ever-opportunistic Gruffydd ap Llewellyn saw an opportunity to attack England again, and this time something absolutely unique takes place. As the Welsh forces smashed into Herefordshire, destroying and pillaging as they want, there then followed a, well, how best to describe it, Edward's forces were deployed in stopping it, and those forces were a mixture of English and French retainers. 
Here we actually see a Norman Saxon force defending the Kingdom of England from a bunch of rampaging Britons, which is a statement that takes any simplistic explanation of what was going on in this era outside and shoots it in the back of its head. The Welsh king was clearly exploiting the fact that Edward had already deployed the Shipfjord that year, and they were based over on the East Coast. Forty English longships had been deployed off the coast of Kent on station in case Godwin attacked from Flanders. Godwin did sail over early that June in 1052. He landed off the coast of Dungeness, and as far as we can tell, he was perhaps judging the level of support he had back in his heartlands. But he couldn't do much there, because when he heard the English fleet was in pursuit, he fled and managed to escape due to bad weather. Meanwhile, over in Ireland, Harold and his kid brother Vliefwine were also busy. Harold had arrived in Dublin the previous autumn and had walked in when the place was really a political hot potato. In 1051, when they arrived, the ruler of Dublin was a full-blooded Norse Dysboran leader, a man called Ekmarach, who was doing what all good Norse full-blooded Dysboran leaders should be doing. From Dublin, he had managed to expand his power to become overlord of the Isle of Man and Galloway across the Irish Sea. He was a formidable power, probably the most important of the Vikings of the Irish Sea had seen since the era of Canute. He was clearly willing to provide shelter for Harold and Lefwine, but little else. But then in 1052, Ekmarak was expelled, and Dublin finally came under the direct rule of the Irish under the rulership of King Diarmuid MacMeer, and this freed up some Viking crews. See, the Vikings probably had not wished to aid the two brothers because of potential diplomatic links between King Edward and Ekmarak. But the moment Dublin comes under Irish jurisdiction, the boys got to hire themselves some Viking ships and Viking crews, and now armed, they attacked England. It's always amusing to me that here, 14 years before 1066, Harold Godwinson is the one invading England at the head of a small fleet of nine Viking ships. Harold and his men landed near Portlock on the border of Devon and seized cattle and that most valuable of commodities, people. This was a slaving raid. Viking slave raids were vicious. Typically, you kill the menfolk and capture the women and children to sell back in Dublin slave markets. Harold's intention clearly was to do something horrific in order to shame King Edward. Eventually, the English drove off the raiders, but the Vikings under Harold and his baby brother inflicted heavy losses. Harold Godwinson began to show he had a talent for mass slaughter, but please note he's only getting the taste for it here, clearing his throat. Within a few years, he would be committing acts that would be best described as war crimes, but we've got that to look forward to. Meanwhile, after two months' service, Edward had to recall the shipford to Lambeth, and he sought to swap out the crews and send the ships straight back out. But there was a delay in the process. If you remember, Edward had gotten rid of the professional mercenary crews of Danish sailors who had been based in and around Lambeth the year before. These men, while foreigners, and always a worry they could be loyal to Godwin more than him, had been the professional backbone of the English fleets. With their removal, things were not as organised as they had been, and this means that things were messed up, chaotic, and the replacement crews were delayed. And that left a window open where there was no fleet protecting English shores, and Godwin struck. 
See, while he was in Flanders after that first attempt in June, he realised he needed some help himself. So he had also hired a bunch of Vikings who were hanging around looking for someone to employ them. And he set sail, raiding the Isle of Wight and the coast of England, until his fleet joined forces with Harold and his fleet. The House of Godwin was now united at the head of a large invading force and their intention was to punish England for the hubris of exiling them. This invasion now gained momentum. If you read the official accounts of what followed, Harold sailed along the south coast of England and the people flocked to him like a long-lost grandfather. The saintly godfather returns. Don't believe it. A liberator doesn't need to kidnap locals and take them hostage to secure the support of the locals on the way. Godwin did. He was turning up and he was turning up angry and forcing people who may have flocked to his cause to now 100% flock to his cause, otherwise he'll kill their kids. And he and his sons and their rebel fleet now sailed up the coast and turned into the Thames aiming for Edward. Along the way, Harold and his Vikings of the Irish Sea made a point of attacking and burning Edward's estates and the royal town of Milton Regis. They were coming with intent. The rebel fleet sailed up the Thames and would have found waiting for them, well, London. And Godwin was no Canute. This was London. This was the city which had withstood multiple attacks by the most ferocious Vikings on earth and had never fallen. Did Godwin think he could take London? <laughs> he was welcome to try. No, seriously, based on everything I have seen written, all the evidence before us, I believe firmly that London's attitude to Godwin of Wessex at this moment was simple and brutal. Come and try it, mate. Now, two of the versions of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the C and D version of the text, both claim that Godwin waited until the high tide. And I'll direct quote here, quote, And Godwin stationed himself continually before London with his fleet, till he came to Southwark where he abode some time until the flood came up, unquote. And then, according to the C&D version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, he was able to bypass London Bridge on the high tide. I've got a big problem with that, and I'm going to share you my problem with it. We know that only a few decades earlier, you could not bypass London Bridge, no matter how high the tide. Sven Forkbeard, Canute, Thorkill the Tall and the entire order of Yom's Vikings had tried, but none of them had been able to do this. And now, without there being any reference to there being some new design feature that would allow a hostile fleet completely bypass the most effective barrier on the Thames, we're to assume that Godwin did? Yeah, course he did, mate. Godwin didn't wait for high tide to sail under London Bridge without shenanigans. No. Now, what he could have done, he could have waited for high tide to bypass London Bridge. He could have used the same route his former patron had used decades ago. Remember, Canute had bypassed London's bridge 
by building and utilizing the high tides and utilizing ditches and rivers along the south bank to get himself to Lambeth. He did that back during his siege of London. So that's a land-based channel which could only be used in high water to get a body of ships from the Thames over in Rotherhide to Lambeth. Canute had done that and maybe Godwin did. But remember, sailing under London Bridge, what the text say he did, means the defenders of London would have easily been able to just pour six grades of death down on any ship that went below it. They'd done this to countless Vikings who tried. So again, this simple, he just sailed past London Bridge explanation screams out to me as utterly not rooted in the physical reality of the place or the time. Now, there's not a lot of historians who agree with me out there, so I can and in, will inform the listener that this is an opinion held only by me, as far as I can tell, and I could well be lectured long and hard by more established scholars on this. But while I will take what they say, I will respond with a series of questions, because it really doesn't make any sense to me. Consider that the C&D version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle also say, quote, On this occasion, he had also contrived with the Burgesses, that they should do almost all that he would. When he had arranged his whole expedition, then came the flood, and they soon weighed anchor and steered through the bridge by the south side, unquote. Ah, now this makes sense. This says straight up that Godwin sailed under London Bridge by getting collaborators to basically let him do this, and his ships sail under a bridge, but nobody attacks them. That... I can accept. But most historians say it was the Londoners who did this, the Burgesses. And now allow me to say, no. It wasn't Londoners who did this. It was the residents of Southwark. Southwark. And by extension, the entire Southwark-Lambeth region, which is the home of the ship's fjord, the bastion of Anglo-Scandinavian power in London, where Tovey Pruder and Osgood Clapper celebrated the wedding of Tovey and Osgood's daughter, and above all, land that was probably owned by Godwin. That's possible. So when they mention Burgesses, they don't mean London's Burgesses, they mean the guys south of the river. Ultimately, that someone in Southwark and Lambeth was willing to side with Godwin at this exact moment and allow his ships encircle Edward and his forces in London on the north side. That's what happened. But even then, that did not mean that London agreed with Godwin. And I see evidence to show very clearly that the citizens of London didn't side with Godwin. Because despite getting bypassed the river, Edward and London and Edward's supporters were very much still in this game. Consider what the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says. Godwin and his men had now bypassed London Bridge. They'd encircled the city with ships, which means he could cross his land forces from the south bank to the north bank. And he did. And the, the tactical description reads as follows, quote, The land force, meanwhile, came above and arranged themselves by the strand, and they formed an angle with the ships against the north side, as if they wished to surround the king's ships." Unquote. So Godwin and his army are positioned there, and they're ready, but, quote, 
The king also had a great land force on his side to add to his shipmen, unquote. So Edward had his fleet still, and he had one advantage. He was sitting in London, the untaken fortress. And reinforcements were supposedly arriving all the time. Which begs the question, what's Godwin gonna do? Attack London? <laughs> Attack London with a force that was basically infantry and without siege engines. Even if he created some siege engines. This was an army of England. They're not really experts at siege warfare. And a frontal assault would have played right into Edward's hands because Godwin's forces would have been decimated if they were lucky, dashed against the walls and the ditch before London. Edward was getting reinforcements. However, they were coming up slowly and he had no faith if he sallied forth with his men to engage Godwin that he would win. It was safer for Edward to sit back. I think Godwin's forces had London mostly surrounded at this point. But I think fundamentally both men were stuck. Godwin couldn't risk a head-on assault. And Edward needed him to launch a head-on assault. Because he couldn't risk sallying out. And then stop for a second. Don't forget. This wasn't meant to be a campaign of conquest by a foreign king. This is a standoff between godfathers of England. This was ultimately a political argument. And it had come to this. I'm sure some of Harold's Vikings were up for a good battle, but most of Godwin's men and Edward's men were not. Quote, They were most of them loath to fight with their kinsmen, for there was little else of any great importance but Englishmen on either side. And they were also unwilling that this land should be more exposed to outlandish people because they destroyed each other. Then it was determined that wise men should be sent between them who should settle peace on either side, unquote. This was ultimately an internal political argument. Unlike all politics, it required a sit down and much talking. But there's a sting in this tale still. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says, quote, Then advanced Bishop Stigand, with God's assistance, and the wise men, both within the town and without, who determined that hostages should be given on either side, unquote. Yep, this is how it was going to end. Hostages would be exchanged to allow everybody to know it was safe conduct for everybody else. And that would facilitate Godwin sitting down with King Edward and they could begin the negotiations to get the charges against him lifted and eventually get his lands restored. It all sounds fine, but one crucial thing is missing from this account. You see, the king never sent Godwin any hostages. Indeed, what follows is actually really complicated and I could bore you for another hour with intricate detail about what each source says exactly went down, but we are fairly sure that at this exact moment, Earl Godwin agreed to hand over his youngest child, a boy called Wolfmoss, and a boy called Hakon, who is his nephew. He's the son of his not-currently-present 
eldest boy Sven. And in return for handing over the two boys, Godwin got a pardon. Whatever happens the next day at the negotiations, the king offered to pardon Godwin and his family right here, right now, of all their crimes. Their records would be cleared. They'd be turning up tomorrow innocent. And this is the thing. I keep reading many historians ask the same question again and again. If Godwin had all the advantages, if he had his army all set up, why did he agree to hand over hostages and agree that King Edward didn't have to? And I think they ask this question because they don't see the bleeding obvious staring at them over the shoulders of everybody involved. The very large and very deadly walls of London. Godwin's hand wasn't that good. Ultimately, cards on the table, he could not assault London. He was trapped. He wanted a political solution. And he got it. Edward would pardon him. The king would blink first. That meant when the king agreed to meet with Godwin and to work out everything tomorrow, there would be no grandstanding. He would turn up forgiven and as an innocent man. And then it's just about the restoration of the land. And all Godwin has to do is just give the king a few hostages to make sure he's not going to backstab the king. I think Godwin said yes because, well, he figured that the king would not blow it all by harming the boys. So his son, Wolfnoth, and his nephew, Harkon, were handed over. And everybody got ready for a glorious celebration of Godwin's victory the next day. But Godwin had made a very terrible miscalculation. Because at that moment in time, Archbishop Robert of Canterbury knew what was about to happen. Someone was going to have to be blamed for this entire mess. And that someone wasn't going to be the king, because the kings get away with it. And that someone wasn't going to be Godwin, because he had a pardon. Which basically left him and a small cabal of high-ranking Normans in the frame. So, Robert, the Archbishop of Canterbury, decided to act. And the king said that everything that followed was Robert doing all by himself, but I wouldn't be the first historian to say there is no way Robert of Canterbury could do what he did without the king's permission. Simply put, Robert of Canterbury decided to get out of town fast, like now, and he was going to take the two boy hostages with him as leverage, just in case something went wrong. A rather elaborate plan was made that evening. Three groups of Frenchmen were to break out of the city and go out the gates and go through any forces loyal to Godwin and make a break for safety. Some were to burst out of Bishopsgate, some via Newgate, but these were distractions. The main party was Archbishop Robert and his group, including a man called Bishop Ulf, who were to break out of Aldgate and make straight for the sea. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle describes what follows as, quote, When Archbishop Robert and the Frenchmen knew that, they took horse, and some went west to Pentecost Castle, and some north to Robert's Castle. Archbishop Robert and Bishop Ulf and their companions went out at Eastgate, slaying or else maiming many young men, and betook themselves at one to Adolfsnes, where he put himself on board a ship and went at once over sea, leaving his Paul and all Christendom here on land, unquote. Yep, the Archbishop of Canterbury fled the country. 
probably fighting his way out, slaying and maiming what were probably Godwin's retainers nearby. And they probably took injury themselves. It's worth noting that Bishop Ulf is recorded dead by the year 1053. Regardless, the Norman Archbishop of Canterbury fled England, and in time, the two young boys he was holding on to were to find themselves being looked after by none other than Duke William of Normandy. Meanwhile, back in London, quote, there was proclaimed a general council and all the earls, the best men in the land, were at the council. And the king gave the earl and his children and all the men that were with him his full friendship and the full earldom and all that he possessed before. And he gave the lady all that she had before. Archbishop Robert was fully proclaimed an outlaw with all the Frenchmen, because they chiefly made the discord between Earl Godwin and the King, and Bishop Stiggard succeeded to the Archbishop of Canterbury. Unquote. Yep, a complete cover-up. This is why the fight happened. It was due to the French. And there is a small technicality in this. Quote, Then they outlawed all Frenchmen who before instituted bad lords and judged unrighteous judgment and brought bad counsels into the land. Except so many as they concluded it was agreeable for the king to have with him who were true to him and to all of his people, unquote. So yeah, they kind of banned all the Frenchmen, except they didn't because the king could keep a bunch of French guys with him. So the narrative was written down. This entire incident had been caused by those dirty, stinking Normans. It wasn't an English problem, it was those perfidious Frenchmen. And all Frenchmen were barred, except the ones who the king insisted should remain. I mean, obviously they could stay. In fact, take the narrative that Godwin kicked out the Normans from English politics and shoot it in the back of the head and tell the kids it's gone to a farm in the country, because that's not what Godwin did at all. What Godwin and Edward did together was pin the blame on some of the Normans in England, who were convenient to blame, so they could both save face, and then try to carry on as if nothing happened. And that was it. Apart from the fact the aftermath from this was very messy. And it speaks of a conflict that should never have happened, a conflict born out of pride and hubris. I mean, what had changed after all of this? Very little, but also everything. England was still England. Edward the Confessor still remained on the throne. Edith was restored as his wife. Godwin still ran Wessex. So that was the same. The changes. The changes were the messy detritus of this incredible conflict. England now didn't have an Archbishop of Canterbury. Robert had fled so fast he'd left his pallium. And so Stigard took the title. But then Robert claimed he was still holder of the post. And then Stigard counterclaimed that Robert had vacated the post and that made him the holder of the post. But then Stigard never went to Rome to collect his pallium. Stigard was one of Canute's men, another one of the mob who made well from selling out the English, and he served in the post of Archbishop of Canterbury for the next few years, while the rest of Europe saw him as illegitimate. Now, I should point out that when a pope was elected at one point, the pope did 
send him a pallium a few years later. Unfortunately for Stigard, the next year that Pope died, was declared an anti-Pope, and the new Pope condemned the sending of the pallium, and Stigard managed to go from looking like a cheap, nasty, corrupt Archbishop of Canterbury to looking like a damn near heretical, nasty, corrupt Archbishop of Canterbury. For crying out loud, he ended up being excommunicated. And it wasn't just Canterbury this problem was taking place in. Uh, the Archbishop of York had also fled. Um, Edward may have wanted to restore Robert, but the Witangamot, a.k.a. Godwin, would never agree to it. And Rome saw Stigard as a crook. This state of messy affairs lasted a while. Godwin had come out of it having lost two sons. Sven, his eldest, had, when the family had fled to Flanders, been ordered to atone for his cousin Bjorn's murder. Maybe it was his idea, but it sounds like Godwin realised that the murder of his cousin hung over his eldest boy and would continue to do so. So Sven went off on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, because by simply going there he could be redeemed of his sins and could come back with a clean slate. Off Sven went, and he made it to Jerusalem, and he was on his way back when he died in Constantinople, two weeks after Godwin's great triumph in London. Meanwhile, Godwin's baby boy, Wolfnoth, was now a hostage, and in time, it would be up to Duke William of Normandy to decide what fate would happen to him. And Godwin never really got to enjoy his victory. In Easter of the year 1053, the 10th anniversary of the coronation of Edward, Godwin and all his sons, now newly restored friends of the king, all travelled to Winchester to celebrate the occasion. During the feast, Godwin suddenly collapsed at the table. He is described as being stricken and incapable of speech, the same terminology used to describe the death of Harthacanute. Remember, a man who could not speak could not confess his sins and therefore could not find final absolution before his death. When they say that he collapsed and was incapable of speech, the sly implication by some scribe at the time was that Godwin would suffer in eternity and hell for his sins. So yeah, this entire conflict had been messy and had ultimately served no one. But in the end it was inevitable really. Power really is a zero-sum equation. Someone had to be the more powerful. And in the end, for all the reasons I've given, and a heap of others I had to remove because this story is long enough as it is, it turned out to be Godwin. And so we come into the year 1053. Edward remains king, now entering his second decade in power, the dynasty of Godwin, now under the leadership of his eldest surviving son Harold, are restored and really are in the driving seat of things. London can get back to the business of trade and making money and overseeing the fleet and sundry other things that kept its residents busy. Everything seems to have calmed down. In fact, only one issue seemed to be bothering people about now. The king didn't have an heir. He was coming up to his 50th birthday. 
and he didn't have an heir. This did not bode well. <sighs> Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. There will be a script of a Godfather trilogy up on Imager within the next week or so, and I'll probably include the script for all three episodes in one great big post so you can read along as well as listen along. And for those of you who've come to this podcast after reading those historical posts I put up in Imgur, hi my dudes, yes, this is what I sound like. <laughs> anyway, that's enough from me. I'll be back for the next part, chapter 45, The Sacred Island, and we'll get back to our regular weekly broadcast. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.